0: Today's guest is the travel writer Sophie Roberts. Her new book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, tells the story of her unusual quest east of the Ural Mountains in search of antique pianos and the remarkable chapters from Russian history that she uncovered along the way. Our section editor, John Borkham, met with Sophie in London to find out more.
2: So to begin, Sophie, we should probably go back to 2015 and look at how this incredible journey actually began. And what led you to Siberia in the first place?
3: Well, strangely, I wasn't even in Russia when the idea came about. I was in Mongolia. I was in the Orkon Valley, which is a fascinating part of Mongolia, about eight hours' drive from the capital, Ulaanbaatar. And I was staying with a family, a German gentleman with a Mongolian wife, and they had a young girl there playing piano. She was playing on a Yamaha piano in a Mongolian gare, a tent, And the sound to me was beautiful, but to the German, he remarked, how I long for her to have one of the lost pianos of Siberia. He was referring to a much, much bigger story that he knew a small part of, and I was piqued. It interested me what lay behind this kind of very evocative, poetic remark. And indeed, I started to look. I travelled to Russia to see whether I could find her an instrument worthy of her talent that had a different sound, a more historic sound, and so opened up a quest, a sort of Monty Python <laughs> quest in many ways, but a quest all the same that led me through 200 years of Russian history.
2: Fantastic. So, I mean, what what's really fascinating about the book is, as you say, how it intersects with all these major events uh, in both Russian history and also musical history. Um, Go back to the beginning, when, when was the piano first introduced to Russia?
3: The word piano is a dangerous one to use in its early times because the keyboard had many different iterations clavichords, pianos, they were used, even the terms were confused. But where I begin the story is with Catherine the Great. And she ordered a piano at the height of the craze in 1774, the Zumpe. It came from England. She was a great Anglophile, as we know. And this piano traveled all the way to, to her palace in Russia. And that began a little fashion. Then her daughter-in-law went off on a great tour and heard... Mozart and Clementi play in a fantastic duel. And Clementi, who was very uh, sharp-eyed to make a, make a bobble too, was quick to hear the clink of the Russian ruble and went into uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow to start to sell these instruments. He brought with him the great pianist-composer John Field as his salesman. And that was when the fever started to really kick yeah. in. That was, of course, all in Western Russia, in St. Petersburg and Moscow. I was interested when it began to spread over the Ural Mountains mm. and into the far reaches of the empire.
2: Um, so how, do, how does it spread across the Ural Mountains?
3: Well, it's a very interesting time. Um, Catherine makes um, Akutsk, the centre of the New Siberia. It's a city on the shores of Lake Baikal. And at that time, there's a road which passes through uh, traveling essentially the same line that the modern Trans-Siberian Railway travels for five thousand five hundred miles from Moscow to Vladivostok. At that time, it was running up towards Akutsk, and it was called the Great Siberian Tract. And it was rough; it was rough as hell. And they would travel on a tarantass pulled by horses, a sledge. Um, winter was a far better time. It, in 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 summer and spring, it was um, it was muddy and hellish. And one wonderful description by a nineteenth-century sort of soldier prince described it as travelling on the Great Siberian Tract was like your fingers running over the keyboards of a piano, the black notes included. (laughs) Uh, I think probably like um, uh, fingers pulling down the back of a blackboard. But it was very challenging, and I was mesmerised by both the absurdity and also the nobility of these great instruments travelling on the back of sledges into the back of beyond. But we also have examples that are even earlier than that. Um, for instance, Bering, who, of course, um, went across and gave us the Bering Strait by name. His wife brought a clavichord over and travelled all the widths of Siberia and back again, all the way to the shores, shores of the Pacific and back home. So there's wonderful stories that exist even earlier than than, than I was talking about just now.
2: Fantastic. And, um, you know, if we move into the... The 19th century, and you've, you've mentioned John Field there. Um, there's also people such as Liszt um, who have a tremendous impact across Europe.
3: Yes. So what happens is these travelling virtuosos are going all around Europe, and uh, and Russia was quick to invite them, and. John Field certainly filled a concert hall or what the equivalent thereof at the time and, and pulled in a crowd, but it was Franz Liszt in 1842 that really got things moving. And there's a wonderful um, description in a St. Petersburg journal, mm. which describes this feverish anticipation and of, of people crowding to get tickets and this great demonic presence that was Franz Liszt, and that was in 1842, and that set hearts aflutter flutter. Um, and the, you know, they, at that same time. They called Saint Petersburg Pianopolis hmm. because of this sort of obsession. Um, so it was very exciting, and it was certainly the power of the virtuosos that brought that brought it to Russia.
2: And if we focus on Siberia specifically, I mean, I guess for most people it conjures up images of like a very foreboding, very hostile place. In the book, you talk about the Decemberists. Who were um, Russian rebels who were exiled there in 1825? It becomes a sort of a ha- almost a haven for piano playing and music, doesn't it?
3: It does. I mean, the Decembrists were responsible for so much. Um, in 1825, they came, a um, the, the hundred uh, or so revolutionaries were banished. They were educated, they were noble, and many of their wives followed. And they brought with them um, pianos, or we know certainly one who did, who is Maria Volkonsky, and she carried with her a clavichord strapped onto the back of her sledge, and it even went over a frozen Lake Baikal. And that image stuck with me early on when I was researching this book, this sort of wonderful thought of of a, of a of this instrument clambering across this lake, which I crossed myself and when it was frozen, a metre thick, the surface. And that piano ended up in the jail where her husband, Sergei Vonkonsky, was incarcerated on the eastern shores of Lake Baikal. and. There was a drawing by a fellow Decemberist that depicts wife and husband with this instrument um, in the cell. But she wasn't the only piano story. In the Decembrists in Siberia, because you, we also find that there was a they had a sort of a, a academy, if you like, <laughs> with a huge collection of library books, and musical lessons um, were part of that academy. And it was a way that these um, exiles and their wives manipulated their prison governors and managed to um, access some of the local communities. And education started to flow, especially when they were released from hard labor <laughs> and went into the community at large in Siberia. And one of the places that I got most excited by was a town called Kyatka, mm. um, south of Baikal on the Mongolian border, where I traced a really very interesting narrative um, with two Decembrist brothers who did encounter um, music and were responsible for all sorts of um, um, an explosion of education, really, in this, this kind of back of beyond, snow swept, wild steppe town.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's, tr- it's truly fascinating, just the sheer scale of Siberia. Um, you actually made multiple journeys, of course, to
3: Siberia, didn't you? I did. I think I calculated it was 158 days I wow. spent out there over a two-year period. Um, and my Siberia, and I should say this from the get-go, is... Is wide. It's poetic. Siberia is not really a place. It's a concept. I went by um, Anton Chekhov's description. Anton Chekhov travelled Siberia in the 1890s. He travelled its width um, all the way to the penal colony of Sakhalin Mm. Island on the coast, the Pacific coast and he talked about siberia beginning in necterenberg in the ural mountains and ending goodness knows where and those three words gave me the poetic license i needed to if you like include the breadth and depth of the siberia that I wanted to experience and explore. So that meant from the far north, the Russian Arctic, all the way down to the Mongolian steppe lands, all the way into the Pacific, the Kuril Islands, the Commander Islands and Kamchatka. So it was a wide area, 11th of the world's land surface, huge.
2: I guess one of the most poignant moments in the book is um, when you travel to the edge of the Ural Mountains and you see where um, the last Romanovs were executed.
3: Yes, I was interested by this. I encountered a piano in the Romanov story um, after they were executed. Their house of special purpose in Ekaterinburg, which was the last place they were before they were taken into the forest um, where their bodies were disposed of, there was a piano. And we know from various other pieces of evidence that um, the the commander in the house played it, the girls at some point played it. Um it was a pretty brutal period. Um and what I wanted to do was try and find that piano. And I was led to various on various false trails, um, possibilities. Um ultimately it opened up that very dark piece of history. And I went deep into it and I realised that some parts of Russian history are not for the outsider to interpret or understand. It was beyond me. It was very dark and beyond me.
2: And talking about um, 1917 and the Russian Revolution, um, how did that change Russia's musical trajectory?
3: Well... It was a very interesting period in so many ways, and of course, my focus was was Siberia. Of course, so the I had one source that helped me, Thomas Preston. He was the British consul to Siberia, based in Ekaterinburg, during the time of revolution and civil war, and he talked about the piano being a passport in Russia. It opens up conversations and doors like nowhere else on earth. And he described the pianos fleeing with the whites and the jewels and the diamonds across the border into Manchuria, what was their Manchuria, into Harbin. So I was following that trail um, in terms of where some of the musical talent went and where some of the instruments went, but it... In terms of Russian piano history at large, what happened is you had a huge um, business going with piano makers within Russia, the Joseph Becker factory was producing um, a great number of instruments. And then that was obviously um, taken in under the state's wing and it became the Red October factory. It continued, but the emphasis went from these great grand noble instruments to much more affordable Soviet uprights um, because piano belonged to everybody, not just to the elite. And that the education system started to shift and in a way the living history was what I enjoyed so much when I was there knocking on doors to find this high level of musical education that was a direct result of course of this huge shift in the political order.
2: And so and also did you encounter pianos in Gulag history?
3: Yes I did. I encountered them by looking for them. I went up to Colimaar which is an area right on the far east coast, brutal, where some of the worst of the gulag were located. And there was a town there called Magadan, a town built by convicts. And there was a theatre in this town called Magadan. And it was a very active theatre where prisoner convicts would perform. And a travesty of freedom, of course. Um, One one survivor described it, you know, these cultural performances performed by people half alive. So it was a dark period to explore through something as beautiful as a piano. But it also was very revealing because you realise that there were people who also used music as a way to imagine another world. So, for instance, the last Tsarevich's piano teacher, he was in Kolomar, and he composed a cycle of 24 preludes for the piano on telegraph forms and two small notepads. So while I didn't claim to find any instruments in the Gulag, I found evidence of the piano's power in a time which is unthinkably dark. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And I think that idea of perspective and a shifting perspective was the biggest thing I took away from Siberia, is that maybe we have to approach these places slightly differently and try and look for the humanity in them, not just the horror.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, Need to hire? You need indeed
2: And on your travels, you um, encountered what are called old believer communities. Uh, Could you explain that?
3: So the old believers I was really interested in because they're an important strand of Siberian history. In the 17th century, there was a schism in the Russian Orthodox Church, um, and it's a relatively complicated one. But in short, one of the earliest travel tales that I fell for was this gentleman called archpriest Avakum, who wrote this brilliant pocketbook account of Siberia during his time of exile. And he described a lake Baikal covered with so many swans they looked like snow, and cliffs so high you'd crick your neck to see them. And that nature writing totally got me. That was 17th century nature writing. And I started to explore some of the connections with the old believers, and and although instrumental piano music is is by no means a part of their culture, um, they still tell the time according to the way <laughs> it was told under Tsar Peter the Great. Uh, they're a very uh, private community, and they. Uh, occasionally I encountered ones that would talk to me as, a, as, a, as an outsider, one of whom I will, I will fondly remember because she gave me the best piece of advice I had in all my travels, which is Siberia is a wardrobe problem. It's too cold in winter and too hot in summer. Get over it and you'll fall in love.
2: So along the way, you're meeting a really wide range of people um, and they must have been questioning your motives, really.
3: Yes. I mean, obviously, it's peculiar that some of the places I went were so remote, so off any kind of tourist itinerary that you turn up as an English girl in minus 20, minus 30 um, saying, I'm looking for a piano, and they think you're off off your head. But Equally, there's rather a good tradition in English eccentrics going off looking for curious things in Siberia, um, including a wonderful man called James Holman, who in 1823, he travelled all the way to Akutsk on the shores of Lake Baikal, and he had a description of hearing pianos there. And I loved it because he was blind, uh, but he was arrested and rapidly sent um, back home um, on suspicion of being a British spy, which I thought was fantastic. And then there was another woman called Kate Marsden who she was looking for a cure for leprosy she was a Victorian traveller and a very very brave one and I read her book and I identify with what I think is um, I'm not sure if she's really looking for a cure for leprosy um, because she gets so distracted by Siberia's lures and surprises and horrors um, that she ends up writing quite a different book I think to the one she possibly intended Um, and she had this wonderful hand-drawn map where she marks her path she's going to take from St. Petersburg to the city of Yakutsk, now a city, um, which, just so you understand, Yakutsk in Yakutia is the size of India. And that's just one region of Siberia. And she marked that route up as accomplished. But her other route, which was a line over the top of Siberia, up through the narrow neck of Kamchatka, is marked up with a wistful contemplated. And I loved the power of ambition and optimism in that map. So that was a very precious find during my research process.
2: And during your research process as well, um I mean, you state in the book that you're you're not a pianist yourself. But did you find yourself becoming something of an expert in pianos? Did you find yourself trying to find the serial number and the
3: yes? I mean, I think it's important to know. I'm a journalist. Um I'm not a musician, and I'm not a historian. And I, but I'm I'm quite good or I'm quite keen to piece together pieces of information. And the great thing about pianos is serial numbers can lead back to um, factories and factories can lead back to buyers and tuners. So it was patching together those things that were exciting to me. And more often than not, provenance has been lost for so many reasons, deliberate and accidental. And For so many pianos, the object became redundant or uninteresting to a family. The pianos I was interested in were the ones that meant something, um, not necessarily musically, Mm. but as a totem of solace, if you like. So there was one piano in particular that I encountered early on. It was a late 19th century one. It was very interesting. Um, It was Russian made. um, So it belonged to this time when the Russian piano factories were very, very lively. And it was a wonderful object. The sound was rotten and probably unsalvageable, but it was a wonderful object. And the owner of this piano said to me that when he would purchased it for $100 in the days of perestroika, when people were forced into selling whatever they had, he had remembered the owner telling him that it had arrived in Siberia on the back of a sledge, which means that it's um, before the trains. So I was desperate to try and find the provenance of it. I poked around the neighborhood he described, knocking on doors. Somebody said that it had something to do with a schoolteacher. And it was real needle in the haystack stuff. Then I went back two years later, and I thought, I'm going to give it one more push. So I made an appeal on Russian television um, with a really helpful Russian journalist. And sure enough, a day later, we got a call. And it was from this gentleman saying, that piano belonged to my mother-in-law. I think she's still alive. And I walked up three floors of stairs, I knocked on the door, I was given the address and that lady's story, it was her piano, was to me one of the most profound moments because it wove together a really critical period in Russian history and it was her aunt's piano that had indeed arrived in Siberia from St. Petersburg on the back of a sledge. Well. She now listens to the music of that piano because its owner, its new owner, made a recording with a pianist, and she says it's like listening to the music of her childhood. She's too frail to go and see the piano for herself, but she listens to the recording. so in 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 many respects, this book is about action, not just the past.
2: Yeah. And what's the current state of piano making and, I guess, piano culture in Siberia?
3: Well, the piano story is the same the world over. It's lost to recorded sound and it's lost to, um, you know, cheap synthesizers and electronic keyboards. So it's no different from anywhere else in the world. But um, Russia no longer has a piano factory. It did. And there are People trying to change that, but there is no piano factory in Russia. There used to be, even in Siberia. I visited one in the city of Tyumen. That was a very um, uh, it, it was a piano that was extremely active during the Soviet period. And in fact, the first piano belonging to the concert pianist Denis Matsuev came from this Tyumen factory, and I visited it. There were people that remembered the history. There was one gentleman who had indeed made pianos and it was now making furniture.
2: So what did you ultimately take away from your time in Siberia? I mean, I think in the book you describe it as a kind of a bad breakup when it came to an end.
3: Yeah, Siberia has this effect. It really gets under your skin if you let it. Um, And people that spend time there and have written about it come to that conclusion if they weren't in exile and if they weren't in a gulag. So I'm seeing it from a very specific perspective because the darkness is there and it's huge. But there is another side that I really wanted to discover, which is the human side, the musical side, the optimistic side. And it's a question of perspective and breaking stereotypes. And I think A really good example is a gentleman I met in the Altai who was an Aeroflot navigator. In Perestroika, he moved to the mountains. He stopped his job. And he encountered a young boy playing a piano which had been painted onto a kitchen table. He had no instrument. So this former Aeroflot navigator went to Moscow and bought him a cheap piano and brought it back to the mountains. He has since distributed 42 pianos to mountain villages. He is building a concert hall from Siberian Larch behind his house. He has a library of 10,000 books, a community library. This man does not have any wealth. He's doing it through sheer passion. And when I said to him, I'm looking for a piano for this Mongolian pianist, he said to me, well, if you find one, can you bring me one too? And I said to him, but this is so remote. And he said, but this place is... He said to me, and I felt the tables turn, the world is very remote, he said. We are at the centre. And I think that idea of perspective and a shifting perspective was the biggest thing I took away from Siberia is that maybe we have to approach these places slightly differently and try and look for the humanity in them, not just the horror.
0: That was Sophie Roberts, Her new book, The Lost Pianos of Siberia, is out now, published by Doubleday. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Wednesday when Greg Jenner will be discussing the history of celebrity.